Support for the Pop Shop Podcast comes from Audible, featuring more than 180,000 titles, including the latest releases, bestsellers, romances, thrillers, and lots more. Audible is the world's leading source of audiobooks. Start your 30-day free trial with a free audiobook on audible.com slash billboard. Sit out and run, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight. Just might get some sleep tonight. This is Shirley Halperin, news director from Billboard magazine. You are joining me for a special edition of the Pop Shop podcast sponsored by Audible. Today we have Dennis McNally, the author of Jerry on Jerry, a brand new book about interviews that he has conducted with the Grateful Dead's Jerry Garcia. Dennis McNally is a longtime friend of the band and a former publicist for the group um, and also a, a confidant and of, of Jerry Garcia's. So, Dennis, um, welcome. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. So if you could tell us first, before before we, we jump into these interviews, how did this book come about? How, how did the idea come together to collate these interviews done over many years into a single package? In 2002, I published uh, what I had been working on at that point for 20-some years, uh, a history of the Grateful Dead called A Long Strange Trip. And uh, thought I was done, <laughs> silly me. Uh, and took, among other things, in the in the years after, took all my files and and various things. The the University of California at Santa Cruz opened the Grateful Dead archives, and the band gave its uh, back files to them. And uh, I gave all of my files too, including my tapes uh, of the various interviews that I had done, um, and moved on, or so I thought. And a couple of years back, the folks at the Jerry Garcia estate uh, were looking through the archives and came across the tapes and said, because they're much smarter than I am, they said, there's a book in this. And uh, eventually they, they transcribed them. Um, and then they called me up and said, well, we want you to edit together uh, these, uh, you know, in some kind of coherent way, uh, these tapes. Uh, it's about seven hours of, of uh, material. Uh, with Jerry, uh, most of which I, I had done myself, and um, that's that's kind of the short answer. We uh, I did as they asked uh, happily and uh, edited everything together, and uh, the uh, the book and of course it's two books. It's a book book, a print book, and an audio book uh, came out on November twenty fourth. And Dennis, your interviews with Jerry. Um, these predate your role, or some of them predate your role as as the band's PR man. Can you sort of explain why you were you were doing interviews, like official, formal sit down interviews with Jerry? There's three or four different eras that are represented in the book. Uh, the first one uh, is the first time I met Jerry, which is 1973. And to try and tell that really briefly, I was then working on my first book, which was a biography of Jack Kerouac, which eventually is what. Uh, interested Jerry in in my work and and caused him to invite me to become the the band's historian, and I had met uh, this uh, reporter for the New York Post. This is kind of a different New York Post than the one you know of today. Uh, uh, back in the late fifties and early sixties, it was actually quite an excellent newspaper. And the reporter there had done this very long series on the Beat Generation. Um, and um, I had hooked up with him, and he wanted to get his own book about the Beats. He uh, wanted to publish a book of his articles and had never quite pulled it off and decided that I could help him. 
and that uh, one way that, to do that would be to interview Jerry Garcia about Neil Cassidy, uh, the character Dean Moriarty in On the Road in a very famous uh, so-called beat, um, and of course... Uh, the man uh, <clears throat> that the Grateful Dead are singing about in their song, the other one, Cowboy Neil at the Wheel of the Bus to Never Everland, uh, and a friend of Ken Kesey's. So uh, in 1973, so this is my first, uh, and it's really shocking to think, Jerry was 30 at the time. Uh, <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to imagine him, I mean, to think of him as you know, a relatively young guy, at least from where I sit now. So anyway, uh, in 1973, uh, he played a uh, show with his bluegrass band, Olden in the Way, in New Jersey. And afterwards, uh, we went, Al Aronowitz, this guy, and I went to, um, to Jerry's hotel in New York City. And we interviewed Jerry for about an hour about Neil. Um, and uh, it was, of course, fascinating. The book ne- Al's book never came out. I held on to the tape. Uh, long story short, I decided I wanted to do a book as well about the Grateful Dead, and Jerry invited me to do that. And then eventually, um, I got invited to be the, the uh, publicist. And so the next set of interviews is uh, the fall of 1984, or sometime in 84, uh, when I had by then was, was uh, the publicist. And then there's some more in 1986, when I, um, when Jerry had gotten real ill with, uh, he had gone into a diabetic coma, but he was now recovered and, and doing real well and proves that his mind was still intact because uh, the, uh, the, he did this you know, fantastic interview. And then there's one other chunk, which is an interview that I arranged but didn't do uh, with a, a reporter from uh, upstate New York named Jeremy Alderson. And Jeremy was very interested in LSD and psychedelics. And so he wanted to do an interview with Jerry that was just singly about uh, LSD. And it, that sort of intrigued uh, Jerry because nobody would ever actually, oddly enough, nobody would ever actually done that, including me. So uh, we took some really you know, nice chunks out of that. And so that's the, the origin of, of the, uh, the tapes. Really interesting, too, because they span such a long period of time, but you can really see a through line. Like you said, it starts with a very young Jerry, and you know when you get into the Jerry of the 80s, it doesn't seem like a different person. So I, I give you I give you credit for obviously having a real rapport with him. He he clearly felt like he could be honest in your presence, and that comes through in the interviews. So so bravo, Dennis. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, you know, on that actually, uh, that's really as my. I mean, I, I I was reasonably well prepared, and 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 you know, he and he yes, he did trust me in part because he he really liked the Kerouac book, and Kerouac was his great great boy, boyhood hero. Um, but it's also just a comment on Jerry. Um, you know, most celebrities do interviews to sell things, which never occurred to Jerry. Um, uh, he, he liked to rap. He liked to talk. He liked to communicate, not to listen to himself. God knows. He liked to talk with people and find out their story. And, and that's one of the reasons why uh, that really makes this uh, project uh, more interesting perhaps than than it otherwise would be is because in addition to the sort of chronological stuff which as a biographer I was asking him questions you know tell me about the church you know being a Roman Catholic kid and this that you know whatever your family your grandmother stuff that I learned 
But then he'd go off on these side tangents, which were <laughs> fantastic. I mean, just wonderful stuff um, that um, didn't fit into my Grateful Dead book. You know, they were just sort of side stuff that were wonderful. Um, for instance, he went into, and, and it's, of course, in Jerry on Jerry, um, a 20, he went on a 20-minute tangent um, about what goes on in his mind, and I mean word for word, um, um, when he's constructing a solo, which is to say in real time. You know, he's got a guitar in his hands, and things are happening. And, and he describes that. I don't know that, you know, Martin Mull, I think it's Martin Mull. He usually gets the credit. Martin, somebody once said, um, writing about music is like um, dancing about architecture, which is to say music touches places that you can't really put into words. Uh, and I don't know that anybody has ever been able to describe uh, the act of improvisation the way Jerry did. I mean, that's he was a really, really smart guy and a very thoughtful guy. Uh, so there's, there's nuggets like that all through uh, the book. So that there's eight chapters and there's, there's eight um, uh, bits of chronology, mostly his youth and, and before the Grateful Dead and the early days of the dead. Um, and then after each one, there's these wonderful side tangents where he talks about Lenny Bruce and movies and, and uh, pl- community and, and tells stories about the musicians he loved, stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, there really were conversations. And, and I was <laughs> the one thing I'll take a compliment on was I was smart enough that when he'd go off on these side tangents, I wasn't going to go, no, 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 I want to, you know, find out about this, this, or this. I just went. Oh yeah, talk to me. Right, you knew, you knew when to shut up, basically. <laughs> I knew when to shut up. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, well, it really is. It's a it's a great read. Um, it's super easy read, and for any deadhead who who really wants to hear Jerry and the way he thought and the way he spoke, um, you know, the print and and audio versions of this book is is a great resource for that. So I, I want to touch on just a few things in the book that that I thought were were really interesting. Um, first, I wanted to talk about Jerry's influence by radio, especially as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. I love the line that he says where, you know, he, he is basically describing um, sitting around and listening to the radio. And he also mentions he was one of these guys who would have a transistor radio with the earbud in his ear constantly. So he was a real fan of radio. Um, and I loved what he said about uh, how he would spin worlds of radio in his head you know he really had to sort of come up with these sort of visuals which i can see because the songs of the grateful dead are also very visual stories they're tales you know you can you can pretty much see the town that he's talking about the people the bottle um so can you talk a little bit about that about how how he discovered music, which he says was really undifferentiated. You know, it was all different kinds of genres. He discovered country on the radio. Can you talk a little bit about your, your conversations about that? Well, yeah. Um, Jerry was a true child of, uh, you know, the electronic world. Uh, remember, he was born in 1942. Uh, his family was the first one on the block to get a TV, but even that wasn't until '49. And he'd been listening to the radio for, you know, quite a good long while before, uh, before 1949. So you start out with um, uh, the, the first music he heard, which as far as radio goes, actually, he talks about, uh, in, again, in Jerry on Jerry, 
um, was uh, Rhythm and Blues, which was, in, uh, I think, his, his older brother, uh, Clifford, commonly called Tiff. Uh, Tiff uh, started listening to, uh, to R&B, and, and by like 52, 53, Jerry was, that's you know, pretty much the, 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 the majority of what he listened to. Um, he, he first listened to music when he discovered some old 78 records uh, in his grandparents' uh, summer the attic of his, they have a, a summer house down near Santa Cruz, and he just played them over and over again. It was basically folk times, Sweet Betsy from Pike, and things like that. Um, and as you say, by by the his teens, he's uh, working at the the family um, uh, bar, bar and grill, uh, which his mother owned. Um, his father had died, and um, and you know with a transistor radio in his ear, and some of the most interesting stuff. Uh, also, sort of parallel to that, uh, in the book is about when he starts talking about um, jukeboxes, because of course, the bar always had. You know, he, there were various incarnations of the bar, and they always had a, a jukebox. And he, you know, he followed very closely. The radio. I mean, he, you know, he talks about the Great Gildersleeve and various other, uh, you know, the the shows, the the the, the, the sort of uh, dramatic uh, radio shows that uh, that uh, he just, you know. He'd sit there and make up entire world. You know, he, fairly it's fairly easy to understand that he had a great imagination uh, as a as a little boy and after, and um, he'd be listening to these radio shows and you know making up his own variations and and then he um, eventually got to uh, movies and television and and that that grabbed him too. Yeah, I loved uh, I, I love the line where he says, "Any room with room service." And a guitar is fully furnished, and then the TV is like the fireplace. Um, there you go, and that's uh, he. Without without the the visual the visual wallpaper, he was not comfortable. So let's listen to a little bit of Jerry speaking about discovering radio, discovering these worlds. Um, this comes from the book Jerry on Jerry, written by Dennis McNally. Geez, I don't remember. I mean, I remember more the effect that for some there was something about that that was so. It was very romantic to me, <clears throat> even though I was just a little kid. <clears throat> Something about her voice, you know, uh, and this was before, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about music then. I didn't, wasn't aware of styles or I wasn't aware there was such a thing as country music. You know what I mean? This is when I was a little kid, you know, and for me, all music was just undifferentiated stuff that came out of the radio. But I remember that because it was that thing of that beautiful, the unaccompanied female voice, you know. Singing these folk musics, it was the purity of it that got to me, you know, and the the pure melodic thing of it that just got right to me. I don't know something about it that said something to my soul, you know. I I couldn't say what it was. It was a totally emotional thing. Now, Dennis, I wanted to ask you about this um this image that Jerry drew, uh, that was called race race record dream. Which, you know, a lot of people probably don't remember that records were called race records back in the 50s. Um, that, that was, you know, sort of a precursor to, to R&B. Um, and he also makes, he, he goes to great lengths to sort of emphasize that R&B really was rhythm and blues in its early nascent days. Um, how influential was R&B on his sound? Because I always think of him as, as folk and Americana and blues and even country. R&B is not, not really the genre that I would go to when I think of the Grateful Dead. Can you talk about that a bit? 
by the time Jerry uh, became part of the Grateful Dead, the 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 the, the most influential uh, aspect of his sound was actually. Uh, had been bluegrass banjo playing, which he had just gotten completely nuts about for about three years uh, before he uh, before he decided that a trying to play bluegrass in the Bay Area was not a long term you know a project with long term viability, um, <clears throat> and they started loosening up and. Pigpen suggested a, a blues band, a, a, a sort of a Rolling Stones blues band, and that was the Warlocks, which became the Grateful Dead. But before that, I mean, the first music uh, was was absolutely rhythm and blues, uh, and and you know, Jerry was very it was a San Franciscan uh, through and through, which meant among other things that he was very he was he was very sensitive to what now is dismissed as um, PC as as uh, uh, political correctness. Um, in his point of view, I think it was just accuracy. Um, he was observing things like. Um, Little Richard would do um, one version of a song, and then Pat Boone would cover it. Um, and there was, as he put it, there was, you know, the the hip black version, and there was the lame white version. Uh, and he he watched these sort of strands of of American music wind around each other all through the fifties, long before, you know, even before uh, uh, so called rock and roll. Um, and this 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 was an essential part of his of his DNA. Um, and the blues element uh, of the Grateful Dead w- was really centered on Pigpen, and so after Pigpen died, um, quite rightly, you, your take is well, you know, they're they're a sort of an improvisational folk folk band in some weird way, they're a really strange American string band, uh, which is also what they were. But the the blues stuff was was absolutely part of his DNA, and and uh, he played blues, you know. Till the day he died. Um, and the artwork that I was referring to, when did he sort of start getting into painting and, and drawing? Or was it was it always there? Did it something that, that, that sort of creeped up later in his life? Or was he always sort of visually inclined? He was always visually inclined. Uh, Jerry uh, talks about his third grade teacher, Miss Simon. I never did get a first name for her. All he remembered was Miss yeah, He Simon. might not even know uh, her first name, right? He probably never did. Uh, you, you, know, you don't go around asking your third grade teacher, hey, what's your first name? Uh, Jerry, uh, she, she saw that he was really, he really loved sketching. And he um, would, uh, and she encouraged him with every art project, you know, that she could possibly throw at him. And it really, it, it, it you know, it really captured him. Around roughly the same time, um, he went to uh, this movie, and believe it or not, it was called Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Now, this is not what you call, you know, an American masterpiece, but it completely grabbed him, and it got him into the horror genre, uh, both uh, films and books. And, you know, he was reading Clive Barker and, and Stephen King, you know, all through the 80s and 90s. Uh, he loved that genre. And he, as a kid, he would be sketching, uh, cartooning, basically, uh, um, Frankenstein, Dracula, you know, all the horror characters. Uh, so that became an essential part of his life. And then where it really got important was when he was 15, uh, living in San Francisco, he began taking Saturday and evening classes at the San, what is now called the San Francisco Art Institute, which was in North Beach, which... 
then, and this is the late 50s, was connected with the whole Beat Generation scene. And it brought him into that scene. And once he took these classes, his teacher was a guy named Wally Hedrick, who's also, by the way, a guitarist, and turned Jerry onto the guitar. He'd been sort of knocking around with piano, uh, but confirmed, you know, they, he'd play guitar uh, in the class while they're painting. And Jerry went, aha, this guitar thing sounds interesting. And that's led him to getting his first guitar when he was 15. Um, and it also, it also deeply encouraged his, his visual side. And he thought of himself as sort of a, an independent artist um, and not part, you know, and a beatnik. He was sort of the baby. He thought of himself as the youngest beatnik. He was never, never exactly a hippie. He was a, he was a beatnik. And he, all these things sort of wrapped around um, and obviously influenced him for the rest of his life. Uh, and as I say, that's why I became um, the band's biographer, his biographer, um, in terms of his invitation, is because I, I sent him a copy of my Kerouac book, and he went, oh, he liked it. And, you know, not to be modest, I mean, I think I did an okay job, but he he liked it in particular, I think, because Kerouac really, really laid out his life for him, uh, what he called his system of ethics, which is to say that, that life was about uh, art, the spirit, friendship, but not necessarily making a lot of money. Now, as it happens, he sort of, if you look at it that way, he got the best of both worlds and ended up, because he never really cared about money, making a lot of money uh, because what he chose to do worked. Uh, but, um, you know, it's not, it was never anything he set out to do. That was you know, happy accident. Interesting. You know, I knew that um, obviously his connection to the Beats is pretty well documented, but I don't think that I realized how much of an influence it continued to be. It wasn't a passing phase, in other words. Oh, no. No, it was a fundamental influence from 16 to death. Um, and of course, you know, he read Kerouac and and went into the bars of North Beach and, and listened to these guys recite poetry. And then he met Neil Cassidy, uh, who was a you know, profound influence on him. And, of course, um, you know, Neil gets his own chapter uh, in the book because Neil really was a, a, a sort of a deranged saint, <laughs> mystic influence uh, guru. Who uh, looked like Jerry. a movie star. Um, who also looked like a movie star. Mm -hmm. uh, he was an extremely handsome guy. And... Just to bring it up, one of the things about the book that's wonderful, of course, of which I had nothing to do with, so I can brag about it, um, is that um, uh, Trixie Garcia, his daughter, and Mountain Girl, his w widow, uh, picked out uh, not only a lot of snapshots, a lot of family snapshots, many of which you've never seen before. I've never seen before, so probably you've never seen them. Uh, but also a lot of uh, Jerry's artwork, you know, little, little things that uh, maybe weren't didn't fit in in any of his big productions. Um, to bring you up to date on that, what happened was uh, he'd always sketched. And one of the first things he did as soon as he got a Macintosh was to get one of the early graphics pads that were, you know, you could do artwork. Uh, but in particular, in 1986, you know, he had this big diabetic, he went into a diabetic coma after uh, basically um, uh, sort of a, uh, we were in Washington, D.C., and it was like 110, and he, he uh, you know, got dehydrated. We flew home, and he went into this coma. 
survived, thank you very much. And uh, part of his therapy, I guess you could describe it as, uh, his mental therapy, uh, was he really got back into uh, the artwork that had sort of gotten light while he'd been a guitarist for the previous 20 years. And um, that's why people know of, know of it now, because there was so much that people said, well, why don't you sell this? And he said, well, if you think it's that good. Uh, he never took it all that seriously. but So anyway, that, the art is from the beginning, lulls a little in the middle, and then um, is a, quite a lot of it in uh, in the later part of his life. Yeah, yeah. And really interesting stuff. Um, that that I, another window into Jerry Garcia that I think a lot of fans maybe didn't didn't realize. Um, I want to move on to his playing style, which is is covered in fairly in depth in these interviews and really fascinating stuff. I mean, obviously, you know, people go to see the Grateful Dead and listen to the concerts because they want to hear the jams and the question of how the jams form and how they wind and where they go you know, is kind of a mystery. And he tries to explain it a little bit um, in this, this part of the book, which uh, I think we should listen to. The, that uh, Madison Square Garden show last fall, you went, it was another a recent, you know, just, just because I happened to have been listening to that uh, tape in my car a lot, yeah. uh, where you went, like, out of a I Need a Miracle, and you were, you were playing Bertha, and there was no overt break. You just, you know, right. If one flowed from from the other, right. And that, you know, well, I love it when that happens. I mean, I love it when they can, and it's possible to do that. And that's something that I, I, I'm, I'm better at that than I am at other things. That's one of the things that I'm good at. Eventually, like if I have a place to go, eventually I can get there and make it pretty seamless. Because I, because for me, the relationship between one thing and another is always obvious. You know what I mean? Even if it's completely invisible to everybody else, to me, it's always really obvious. And all, all I need to do is know both halves. And and eventually, I'll find the place that works, you know, that'll walk between the two. Like, Weir sometimes does it, but he has a sort of a blockier notion, you know, uh, which is okay. But for me, I like that invisible thing. I like that sort of sleight of hand approach. Mm. It's hilarious, Dennis, what he said about Bertha too. What did he say? It was like, it's like, it was like a pop song basically to him, right? Like he he didn't he didn't enjoy playing it. It was a Bertha was a a, a fairly conventional uh, rock and roll song, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, the the thing about the Grateful Dead is you have these five guys, each of whom come from completely different musical genres. Uh, Jerry's mostly influenced by bluegrass when they when they all sit down and start playing. Late 1964, you have a blues man in Pigpen. You have an R&B drummer in Kreutzmann. You have a former avant a trumpet player and a big band trumpet player and avant-garde classical composer in playing bass named Phil Lesh, and you have a folky guitarist named Bob Weir. Uh, and what made them special very quickly is the secret ingredient of of most great 20th century American music, namely improvisation. Uh, to quote Bobby, who, who says these things offhandedly, um, we were, let's see, the song was over, but we weren't done playing. <laughs> and they would continue, and they would stretch out. And this is real improvisation, which is to say, even now, most jazz, everybody else is holding down the basic song, and the, you have a soloist who's truly improvising. But with the Grateful Dead, everybody was improvising. 
Uh, and it could it could be very messy. I mean, that's the magic of the Grateful Dead. Um, David Freiberg once said, you know, I, I love musicians that just like to jump off a cliff because sometimes you end up on the rocks below, sometimes you fly. And as the years went by, the Grateful Dead got better and better at it and, and fell on the rocks, you know, less and, you know, less and less often. But the fact is that it was, it was improvisation and treating music as, as a kind of a, um, look, it is a language of its own. And treating it as something that you, you can lose most of the conventional rules and that's okay, you know. Or, or to quote them, the one, most music, you know, any musician will, will, will know when you say, you know, the one, they mean the, you know, there's a, there's a first beat and there's the one, you, know, you, know, you need to know where the one is to stay in step with everyone else. Mm. But with The Grateful Dead... The one is wherever you want it to be. And once you get that, and for instance, John Mayer seems to be doing a very good job of it, um, um, then you can play with the Grateful Dead or Branford Marsalis or, you know, um, a lot of other musicians that, that uh, you know, recognize that. It's, it's a, it takes a certain amount of flexibility. When I listen to Audible, I'm not flying to my third sales meeting this month. I'm on a romantic date with my vampire boyfriend, Pierre. That pale skin, those dark, mysterious eyes, and those pointy teeth. Take me away, Pierre! Ma'am? I want to become queen of the night! Ma'am, something to drink? Water, please? Audible. Stories that surround you. More than 180,000 audio titles, and your first download is free at audible.com. Well, Jerry, so he describes in the interviews playing till all hours of the night until the sun came up. I mean, not realizing how much how much time went on. I mean, this is not someone who who looked at the guitar as like, oh, God, I have to practice again. It, it was the opposite. I mean, it really was. It seems like it was his lifeline. It, it, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. No, he, he and he says again, he says so in, in the book that that uh, in his late teens and particularly about the age 20, which is to say, no, no, he's still only 19. In his very late teens, when he got out of the army, um, the army got very smart and said, you know, you're not really amenable to military discipline. Why don't, why don't you just take a hike? And he went, thanks. <laughs> uh, so he gets out of the army and, you know, he had still thought of himself as a, as a, as a budding artist. But by then, uh, the guitar had simply taken hold and he would get up in the morning and this lasted for you know many many years i mean at 17 ashbury street the legendary home of the grateful dead he was getting up this is you know think of him as a night owl he was getting up at 6 30 and putting on the coffee and picking up the guitar and about 12 hours later he'd set it down it wasn't because he had to well Yes, it was because he had to, not because he had to. If right. You catch my drift. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it was it was a mania. He he was never disciplined. He was obsessive. <laughs> and then interestingly, when he talks about some of the studio recordings, like uh, you, you you get into a little bit of um, discussing Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. You know, two just fantastic studio albums by the Dead. Um, he talks about 
having the sort of prettiness of songs like Addicts of My Life with the multiple harmonies coming together and gelling just so. And I thought this was really interesting how he seemed almost a little envious of, of Crosby Stills, who he mentions, because he says they made it seem so easy. Um, and that's, I, I don't know, that was kind of interesting to me, just getting getting on that topic of Crosby, Stills, and, and their contemporaries. And actually, it's a good segue to another portion of the book that I was like, whoa, my eyes lit up. The part about talking about Bob Dylan. Um, he says at one point that he, in the early days when he was listening to Dylan, that he found him reprehensible. Um, By 65, he'd, you know, been illuminated, shall we say, about Dylan. Um, when he heard uh, Baby Blue, for instance, and he went, oh, my God, what a great song. Um, where he was a little dubious was when he was this purest folky in, like, 62 and 63, and Dylan's writing his own material, which just wasn't done at the time. Um, and that's, that's, he, he had reservations at that time. Um, one of the things that comes through in Jerry on Jerry constantly is that Jerry really, really... Uh, had a very, well, is a, a fairly modest and humble guy about his own talent and really loved other musicians, uh, you know, and, and loved listening to them and lo- loved working with them. There's a passage at the end there um, uh, when he talks about Scotty Stoneman, who was a bluegrass uh, fiddler, that he's just a fan, you know. I mean, no deadhead could talk about Jerry any, any more fervently than he talks about Scotty Stoneman. Um, and the same with Dylan, and I, I really do think that along with, say, Jimi Hendrix, that Jerry's by far the, the greatest Dylan interpreter uh, you know, ever, really. Uh, but at, at any rate, um, he, he really, he, he just recognized what other musicians' strengths were. And harmony singing, the Grateful Dead hit it a few times, um, and Addicts of My Life is certainly one of them, uh, in particular thanks to the, the techniques uh, that their, uh, engin- their producer, Stephen Barncard, for American Beauty, uh, brought in. Um, it really, you know, it's, ex- it's, it's truly exquisite stuff, um, particularly if you get a chance, listen to uh, Mickey Hart's five, 5.1 remix of it. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, but the thing is, of course, you know, there's great stories about uh, the first time uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash sang together, literally, in a, in a living room, and, you know, with an acoustic guitar. And those voices blended. I'm going to interrupt myself and tell you a story, which will illustrate this. One time I'm riding in a limo, in a, uh, a van with Jerry. We were in Salt Lake City uh, doing shows there, and the promoter had formerly been the manager of the Osmonds. Now, you know, most people would think, oh, Jerry Garcia, he, you know, the Osmond brothers, you know, he'd sort of be dismissive. It, in fact, launched him into a 10-minute mini-lecture about family singing acts and how fascinating it is because, you know, of course, people, they've been, literally, if they're, if they're raised together, they sound like each other. He talked about the Mills Brothers and the, and the Osmonds and the, and the um, uh, there was a group of women, the Boswell sisters, and very, you know, like that, um, and... And Crosby, Stills, and Nash, it was as though they had been born together. They just, they sang harmony. And it just, it, as he says, it, it, 
it, maybe a pinch of envy, but it was just mostly, wow, that's so good. It would be so much fun if we could do that. And at the very least, they tried. And, and it, in spots, and as I say, uh, in Ripple and in Addicts of My Life, I think they, you know, they, they come up to the mark. Um, and that was the period. If the Grateful Dead had stayed the way they were in 1969, which is this all-out, deeply improvisational, experimental uh, rock band, I don't know. I don't know how long they could have stayed together, and I don't know how long it would have felt good to them. Uh, but what happened was that just at the time when they're playing their best, you know, forty-five minute dark stars, uh, Robert Hunter and Jerry Garcia started writing these wonderful songs that became "Working Man's Dead" and "American Beauty," and it gave them. It wasn't as though they said, oh, okay, now we're a folk band and, and forget the improvisation, because they stayed an improvisational band till 1995. Uh, but what happened was they tried to become, and I think did become, a kind of a, what Jerry used to call full range, where you could do everything in one night. So you'd have you know, beautiful ballads, stunning you know, electronic craziness, uh, you know, and rock and roll songs. And they tried to do everything, and on a good night, they did. Let's listen to a portion of Jerry talking about Crosby, Stills, and Nash and the Addicts of My Life, and maybe we could even get a little snippet of the song in here. Take a listen. You mentioned uh, the fact that uh, Crosby, Stills, and Earth, Crosby and I guess Stills were around. Oh, yeah, that, that definitely was singing. That was definitely something, because it made, they made it seem so easy, you know. It was the most natural thing on Earth, you know. And... Uh, like that, you know, and it was fun to do. It was something that we could do. So, and when we found ourselves, when we when we did it, it sounded so cool. And just sitting around with an acoustic guitar and, and working up those songs, and it sounded pretty. You know, it sounded, oh man, that sounds nice. Uh-huh. You know, and some of those songs, man, when we sang them, they could stand your hair on end, like uh, "Addicts of My Life." Oh man, oh, man that's a gorgeous song. Oh, a gorgeous man. song. And when we sang that, you know, there were times when it was just beautiful. You know, it really was. And, I mean, that's, uh, that's something nice to be able to do. All right, we're going to move on. Let's talk about acid a little bit. Let's, get, let's do a little acid trip. Um, it was really interesting, this portion of the book, which uh, was a different interviewer, Jeremy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Right. So this portion of the book where Jerry talks about tripping on acid was, well, to, to be uh, quite blunt, it was illuminating. Um, it was, you know, he really looked at acid as, you know, not not a party drug, but a real mind expanding drug. And there's also this really hilarious anecdote about when everybody got dosed backstage. Um, can you can you sort of retell that story a little bit of, of what happened that night where was it a fruit punch that got spiked or something got spiked? Uh, yeah, the apple juice. Uh, uh, apple the juice, infamous right. apple juice. Um, the, the interesting thing about Jerry and, and LSD uh, is a lot of deadheads, I suspect, would assume that if you ask Jerry about LSD, he's going to you know, be an all-out cheerleader. Oh, yeah, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread and everybody ought to. Uh, and in fact... That is not the case. Um, he starts off by saying, well, you know, it's, it's kind of a two-edged sword. First, it's not, it's clearly not for everyone. Um, it's everybody's, Jerry deeply, deeply believed that, that, you know, people should make their own decisions. Certainly, it should be available to everyone, but, it, you know, it, it, it's something that's very important 
um, that you do it consciously and knowingly and and and, and intelligently. Um, he did not approve of of you know sneaking it into somebody's um, uh, you know drink. Uh, and what happened? So he he philosophizes about it, and he, and he has some very thoughtful things to say about LSD. One of the things we got into because it was it it was just sort of one of the the strangest nights um, in the history of the Grateful Dead. Uh, it took place in June of 1969, uh, and they were playing um, at the uh, uh, Fillmore West. And a guy by the name of Ken Goldfinger, who was um, uh, a good friend of the band's, um, decided to spike the apple juice. Um, for whatever reason, he put an enormous, truly enormous amount of LSD uh, into the apple juice. And people who were taking tiny sips were, were probably getting, you know, three, four, five times a normal dose. And people were simply... Uh, it, it was extraordinary. Um, uh, Robert Hunter, for instance, uh, ended up uh, on the sidewalk in front of Fillmore West talking about lobsters invading uh, downtown San Francisco. And he thought, uh, he thought Owsley um, uh, had uh, done it, which he had not, and to actually took a swing at him um, uh, when he sort of loomed up in front of him. And uh, Jerry talks, <laughs> it's actually one of the funniest things in the book is Jerry's um, talking about um, how they, you know, they got home that night somehow. Um, and um, Mountain Girl, uh, his, his uh, widow, who was at the interview, um, turns to him and says, how did we get home that night? And Jerry says, I drove us. <laughs> and she said, really? And said, yeah, you know, five miles an hour dodging the hallucinations, crossing the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and uh, then about 9 o'clock that morning, they get the phone call. Well, uh, Hunter had a kind of a hard time and had gone to somebody's house and they put him up on the couch and could you please come and, come and you know, collect him, <laughs> which he did. Uh, but uh, and, and a hell's angel by the name of Terry the Tramp had actually spent the night just making sure, you know, he didn't hurt himself or anything and kept an eye on him. Um, so, you know, it was a... But one um, one of the the crew's uh, wives, uh, uh, the the wife of a crew member, uh, Rhonda, um, ended up in convulsions. I mean, it was uh, this was not um, it wasn't for laughs, and uh, it, it 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 gave everyone it sobered everyone, shall we say? Mm. I mean, it was uh, you know, Jerry Jerry was a spiritual seeker from the time he could think. Um, um, and LSD came along for him in 1965, and it was the perfect um, door, you know, way of opening the doors of perception, to quote Aldous Huxley. Right. Um, and and he and it sure it sure worked for him, um, but he recognized that um, it um, it wasn't something you did for amusement purposes because it it gave you it gave you everything it gave it could give you f- fantastic joy. And it could scare the snot out of you. Well, let's listen to a portion of, uh, of the book where Jerry talks about doing LSD. Well, because I want to be able to say to people uh, in this time, this, you know, where the big don't say no and where everybody's so roundly against drugs, that, hey, not all drug experiences are negative, you know. I mean, I, I would like for that, well, that minority voice to be heard. 
you know, that some drug experiences are quite, quite positive and I think uh, can be life-enhancing and can be, can, uh, can be pleasant and can be uh, not dangerous and, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, and don't necessarily promote criminal activity and, you know what I mean, it's, I, just, I think that too much of this thing is the fear of change of consciousness is something that I think is something to be feared. It's, it's a kind of, uh, it's another level of kind of, uh, you know what, you know, somebody wants us all to to see reality the same way or what, you know. Well, I never did get the reason. Okay, now explain to me again, what's the thing now I see? Okay, I understand why it's not good to steal and killing that I can get, get that. What, what about, what's the part about getting high again? What was the, that was wrong with that, you know? I don't, you know what I mean? I don't get the moral you know, the structural moral part of it, you know what I mean? What is the reason? Why is it that everybody has this thing about getting high, you know? Um, Dennis, coming back to you, you know, you went through so many different eras with the dead, you know, the 60s, the 70s, and then the 80s, um, during which Just Say No was the sort of prevalent message being put out by you know, Nancy Reagan. And was it... Did you see the difference in acceptability play out in the dead scene? Like, you know, were there was when there was a conservative government at the helm, like the Reagans, was it could you see that tension among deadheads? No, absolutely. We saw the tension, mostly because uh, police police officials uh, knew that if they Deadheads are very trusting and, and very mild and very, uh, you know, they, they tended to think of the area around every concert as sort of sacred space and safe space. Um, and we spent a lot of time saying, uh, guys, we can't protect you here. Um, and um, to, to quote um, um, friends of mine, um, Mama always said, don't do business with strangers. And when guys are wandering around a parking lot saying, doses, doses, um, it's shall we say indiscreet. Uh, we we certainly witnessed. You know, there were there were places where nobody cared, and there were places where where, you know, you'd see all the all the people who were trying to look like hippies, but you know, wearing uh, white side you know white sidewall haircuts and uh, etc. You know, and it was fairly obvious what they were. Uh, but you have to also remember that with the Grateful Dead, we've been living with Ronald Reagan all the way back to when he was governor in the 60s, and he ran as an anti-hippie, anti-student, anti-radical candidate. So there was nothing... The 80s were, as far as having... Except for the fact that it was now national, uh, there was nothing new to the Grateful Dead in having Ronald Reagan be, you know, everybody's uh, sort of least favorite um, father figure. Mm, Very interesting. Wow. So I, I kind of am curious, too, like... WWJS, what would Jerry say um, about marijuana today when we're so close to legalization, when public acceptance is really like at an all-time high and people recognize its medical value? What do you, how do you think Jerry would have reacted to that? He would have smiled and said, it's about damn time. <laughs> I, 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 I'm very reluctant to put words in his mouth, but about that, yeah, I'm pretty confident. Excellent, excellent, great. Um, okay, so just a couple more things. I wanted to talk about something that I, you wrote in the introduction to one of the chapters about how the Grateful Dead played Monterey Pop, and they also played Woodstock, and they weren't the most memorable performances 
for either uh, festival, Monterey Pop, they played after The Who, which was, you know, a, a sort of legendary set where, you know, instruments were thrashed and, and set on fire. Well, that Jimi Hendrix followed. Um, and then at Woodstock, uh, it also just the Grateful Dead. I don't think they made it onto the movie. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the Grateful Dead um, were very human. They They played music. They were players. They really lacked that sense of epic theater um, that, for instance, Jimi Hendrix had. Uh, so that um, their best performances, quite frequently, were sort of in the corners of things, you know, a, a quiet night in Iowa or Ohio, and not necessarily... Uh, and it, listening to their whole corpus, I mean, you know, there's plenty of great nights at the Fillmore East and so forth and so on. But in some of the biggest uh, moments, it's true, um, nerves sort of got to them to some extent. Uh, there were a lot of reasons. Um, as you say, uh, they played very well at Monterey, um, but of course they played in between um, The Who playing their uh, one of their very first uh, performances in America um, uh, and, you know, with the complete destruction of the stage. And then Jimi Hendrix burning his guitar, you know, sacrificing his guitar to the guitar gods. Uh, so no matter how well they played, who would remember? Uh, you know, it was just overshadowed by theater. At Woodstock, uh, there were any number of things. There, one, there's a recent re-release that included one cut, uh, 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 one song that they played. And it's actually quite good. It's their, what they closed with, um, uh, Love Light, and they actually play it rather well. But the, the fact is, uh, you see quite quickly why it didn't make uh, the, the, the main movie, because it looks like it was filmed in a darkened um, uh, dormitory room or something. I mean, it literally, it's, you can barely see that. There are moments when you can barely see them on stage, because the power was so affected by the rainstorm uh, that uh, the stage lighting was you know, down to candle. It was like, can it was as though they were playing by candlelight. Uh, you can't see them. Uh, they, when they started playing, there are people behind them shouting, the stage is collapsing. This is not the ideal circumstances for playing music. Um, and they had normal stage nerves at realizing that this enormous audience, which they couldn't see, because, of course, it was pitch dark out there uh, virtually, um, it was a half a million people. And yet they already knew that it was going to be, that the shows were legendary there were endless technical problems. And the, the, the main thing, and, and the reason that they remember it as the worst gig they ever played, is quite which it isn't. Um, trust me, they, they, they were worse <laughs> at times. Uh, but the fact is that they remember it so badly is because they did something they never did. And that is they realized they only had an hour. And they were, you know, and for once they were going to do showbiz. So they were going to start with a hit, start with a smash, grab everybody's attention and take off from there. Well, you know, that's not the way they made music. And so they tried to start with a very tricky, brilliant song and one played well. And after about an hour of playing, they can play it very well indeed, called St. Stephen. And it's a great song. But they, tried to, they started with St. Stephen and they messed it up. And when they messed it up, all they remember is that moment and it colors all their, their memories. You know, Jerry 
as as he left the stage, he at the top of the stage stairs, his manager, John McIntyre, was standing there, and Jerry looked at him and said, and he was right, you know, you know, man, it's it's great to know that you've just blown the most important gig of your life, and it doesn't matter. Both of which were true. Wow. That's so interesting. I, I love that. I mean, you would think, you know, someone on the outside would look at that as a missed opportunity, these giant festivals. And Altamont, too, which was also just rife with problems. Um, but, yeah, I think you're right. It, it's those shows in Iowa or in Salt Lake or, you know, uh, a tape buried in someone's stash of tapes that has the gems on it. Um, you know, that's the beauty of the dead is you never knew when you were going to get one of those shows. That's, you know, when you, when you, uh, when you depend on magic, you know, sometimes, sometimes it ain't there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. All right. Well, one last thing I, I wanted to ask you about is just getting towards the end of the book where, you know, you're, you're speaking to Jerry. He's, he's been dealing with this diabetic coma. Um, his health is failing. And there's a portion of the book where I think he's kind of joking. And he says, if I die, tell them I wasn't crazy. I thought that was so interesting. Why that? Why that sentiment? Can you sort of elaborate on it? Well, literally, he was at that moment uh, in a uh, still in a co- in, in uh, or st- still in recovery from a coma. He said that to Robert Hunter, and in fact, this was the first person he was, he'd been in a coma for a week. What happened was, in addition to going into a diabetic coma, which you know will you know change. <laughs> change the circuits in your brain, um, you know, just by itself. Um, apparently, he had a really bad allergic reaction. They shot him full of Valium <clears throat> to calm him down. He was going into convulsions. And he uh, had a very bad reaction to the Valium. So the combination really, you know, put him in a, in a spin. So he's, he's, you know, not there for five or six days. And the first person um, he talks to is Robert Hunter, his, you know, songwriting partner and, you know, partner in crime, closest friend. And um, he's, he's talking, but it's as though he's in this incredibly grim, futuristic uh, dream, uh, nightmare, um, you know, where the, insect, the insects turn into vegetables and the vegetables are talking to him. Things are fairly weird. And... For whatever reason, it became, as he said, uh, uh, says in the interview, it became important uh, for him to to make sure that people understood that uh, whatever happened, you know, he really wasn't crazy. Um, and um, even though at that moment it felt like it. Um, so that's what he told Hunter. Mm. It was um, a great comment on his, on his basically strong constitution uh, that he... You know, came out of that, um, and after about three, and after about three months of sort of mental and some physical therapy, not by professionals but by uh, playing music. Um, you know, he was back at it uh, by uh, that was in August, and by December he was playing again, and and you know was was good for years after. So, did his playing style change after this this health emergency? Did you notice that? No, no, not or at least not noticeably. Um, uh, he, 
the first show or two um, after he came back, I remember thinking that that he had so, sort of simplified things at times just to ease back in. Hmm. Um, but after a while, no, uh, you couldn't. Re- I didn't really you know, perceive a, a great change. But I will tell you, I'll tell you one thing that was really interesting. Um, the first show that he played uh, after he returned, they sang. Uh, he sang a song. Uh, they played a song, and he sang it called "Black Peter." And there's a line in "Black Peter" that goes, um, "I was laying in my bed and dying." And Jerry said frequently that you know there were times when he didn't really pay any attention to the. I mean, he 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 learned the lyrics mnemonically. Uh, as sounds uh, that he had to, you know, tumble out of his voice, uh, out of his mouth. But they didn't, you know, he didn't sit there and think of them um, necessarily the content exactly. And I was down in the pit right in front of the right in front of him when he got to that line. And this time, <laughs> for sure, this time he heard it because the expression that rolled over his face as he sings this, I was laying, it was just. I don't know how to describe it. It was, uh, you'll pardon my language, and I'll, I'll kind of bleep myself, but it was like, oh, what did I just say? You know, isn't that weird? Because I was lying in my bed and dying. Uh, it was just this sort of immediate recognition of, um, of what he had just gone through in a way that he hadn't really entirely grasped before, I think. Um, it was it was it was quite remarkable, wow. but no, he in the end he um, he recovered very very well and played some great music after that that coma. Yes, I, I thank goodness because you know there's definitely that <laughs> that generation of people my, like myself who you know started to seeing the dead as soon as we could in the late '80s and, and '90s, and you know it, we caught some great shows. So it, it's good to see that yep. that we actually had. You know, the fully functioning Jerry Garcia, um, you know, it, it, you would know since you, you'd seen every possible oh, yeah, incarnation. No. He, did, he didn't slip. Great, great. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for, for talking to us. Um, you know, it's been a really great year for The Grateful Dead, the 50th anniversary, so much attention, so so many different musicians interpreting their music. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's just been really special. And this book also is very special. Um, it is called Jerry on Jerry, the unpublished Jerry Garcia interviews, and it's available now on Hachette Books. And there's also an audio version that is available for download on audible.com. Dennis, thank you so much for joining Billboard on our Pop Shop podcast. Thank you. I, 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 I've enjoyed myself. I said, I'm running, mother, take my time. A friend, the devil is a friend of mine. I get my time. 